Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. The Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation recently released their annual poll for the year 2019, showing how Americans across different generations view socialism and communism. This year revealed that over one-third of millennials view communism favorably, with 15% believing the world would be better off if the Soviet Union still existed. But history tells quite a different story. Joining me on this episode is Valentina Quilliu. She's the daughter and granddaughter of survivors of a forgotten genocide called the Holodomor that occurred in Ukraine in the 30s and was orchestrated by the Soviet Union. Valentina's story helps shed light on the reality of communism and reveals atrocities committed by the Soviet Union that have been covered up and forgotten. There's a lot of great resources and articles that I've put together for you to go along with this episode, and you can find those in the show notes posted every Wednesday when our episodes release at blog.acton.org. That's blog.acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Speaking with me today about the Holodomor and her efforts to educate people about this forgotten genocide is Valentina Kirillou, Director of Education at the Holodomor Research and Education Consortium in Canada. Valentina, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, you're very welcome. Valentina, what does the word Holodomor mean? I know it's a chapter in history that's been largely forgotten, so a lot of Acton's podcast listeners won't be very familiar with it, and I know I wouldn't be if it wasn't for the fact that we've put on an event in the past to commemorate it. So where does the word come from? What does it mean? Well, it comes from two Ukrainian words. Uh, The first word is holod, the first part of it. And that means famine or starvation in Ukrainian. And the second portion, Holodomor, mor, comes from the verb morete, which means to cause or inflict a torturous death. So basically, when you put it together, it means death inflicted by starvation. Some people have said it was murder by starvation, but I think murder is a very gentle thing in the sense that murder, you usually think someone just been killed, and that's it. But something like the whole of the mort, it took three to four months for a person to die a, tor- a torturous death. Now, can you give us a, just a brief history of the Holodomor, if you were explaining it to someone who has no familiarity with it at all? Give us a, a brief history. When and where did it happen? It occurred under Soviet rule. When the Soviet Union was uh, set up, Ukraine was reconquered from the um, short period of the Russian Revolution where Ukraine tried to set up its independent state. It was reconquered by the Red Army, and it became part of the Soviet Union in 1922. By 1928, uh, Stalin became the supreme ruler or the dictator of the Soviet Union, and at that time he introduced the five-year plan. Uh, What he noticed about Ukraine was that the Ukrainians were quite nationally conscious. They had tried to set up an independent Ukraine, and they were not too keen on communism. And when he brought in uh, two things that he wanted to bring in was industrialization and collectivization. He wanted to make Russia a powerful state so that he could conquer the world. That's what they said at that time. And he wanted, and the only thing he could do it with was to have a cash crop to buy industrial machines. And that meant that the only thing they could sell to the rest of the world 
was the grain from Ukraine, because Ukraine was the breadbasket of Europe. So they decided to take away all private land that had been owned by farmers. There had been about 5 million uh, individual farms in Ukraine. And these were to be now put into 25,000 collective farms or coal hospitals, as they called them. I do want to separate this from more largely hunger in the Soviet Union at the time, because for the most part, I think um, Western countries would have been able, knew that there was famine and hunger in the Soviet Union as a result of collectivization. But the famine that happened in Ukraine was different in that it, it was a direct result of confiscation of food rather than collectivization, correct? That's right. Um, Ukrainians were actually targeted. There's no question of it. Some of the laws that were were um, instituted by the Soviet government were set up specifically for Ukraine. They had to. They wanted to suppress the population. The largest number of revolts. Of course, uh, you know the Ukrainian farmer didn't just sit and take it. That they're going to be taking my land away. I'm not going to uh, just sit here and wait for it to happen. There were revolts and hundreds, and uh, they said up to a thousand revolts in 1930 alone. You know, so some of them were quite small, and uh, that sort of thing happened. So obviously, Stalin knew that the Ukrainians were not going to take it lying down, and as a result, he he put up uh, certain uh, restrictions on them. Once they set up the the collective farms. The collective farms had fantastic quotas on them, very high quotas for the number of tons of, uh, of grain they were supposed to provide to the government. And only after the government got its take would the farmers be given some kind of a salary. And that's the key to the whole thing, that they raised the quota in Ukraine four times for that year in 1932-1933. The Ukrainian farmers could not, on the collective farms, um, meet those quotas. First of all, just the very fact that things had changed overnight. I mean, the successful farmers were in concentration camps, so they had been executed. Um, The ones who were left were leaderless. Uh, You know, things had to change. And that was in itself a problem. So they basically decided that in this way they're going to pacify this this community and that would, um, you know, oppress them, make sure that they fear the Soviet government, and they're not going to be thinking of independence for, for decades. And that actually was one of the results that occurred. That's just, a, just giving you a little bit of information, but one of the other things they did was they blacklisted villages if you didn't meet your quota, they said it was sabotage rather than believing that maybe they, these people really had nothing left to do. They didn't have any food. For example, even seed grain was taken away, which meant you couldn't even plant the next season's crop if you didn't have that. And then they went in. So when, it, when, when they decided that the village was, uh, was uh, doing, committing sabotage against the Soviet government, they surrounded the village with troops. And they wouldn't let anything come in or anyone to leave, which meant it was a certain death sentence. And one-third of all the villages in Ukraine were treated like that. The other thing they did was they sent in brigades, and they took even pumpkins and onions. People dried fruit for the winter. You know, I mean, people could survive without wheat, 
but they can't survive if there's nothing else to eat. So they took absolutely everything from a lot of the villages, and that's where you had the big concentration of uh, deaths. And the largest amount, of, the largest number of victims were not in the grain-growing area, which is in the south, but in the forest steppe region, where the lot, a lot of the opposition to Soviet rule had been. So they were basically, as Norman Davies, a British historian, said, they were doing two, a two, two-pronged sort of uh, system they brought in. They eliminated the private ownership, and they also tried to eliminate Ukrainian identity and nationalism at the same time. Now, I do want to highlight some of those numbers that I, I learned while researching this genocide. Near the height of the famine in the spring of 1933, 25,000 people were dying every day. It's also been estimated that up to 10 million people died in the Holodomor. Are those numbers correct or are they modest? You know what? Um, It's up to 28,000. The latest statistics I got from demographers is up to 28,000 a day, and that would have been in June of 1933. And that is because after the winter, um, you know, there's absolutely nothing left to eat. There's nothing, no matter what you did. They ate bark, they ate weeds, they ate everything that they could get their hands on. There were no birds left. There was nothing left because they tried to do what they could to survive. The numbers themselves are still being thrown about. The uh, demographers who deal with a scientific approach to the numbers of people who died, this is, these are excessive deaths. This is not, you know, everybody knows that there's a certain number of people who die each year. But this is excessive death over what was expected. Comes up to 4 million in the actual territory of Ukraine. They can verify that, you know, as best they can with their type of system. Now, some people have said it's much higher. Um, You know, again, there are different ways of of calculating that. And whether we will ever know the exact number is questionable, too. Like the Jewish community took them a long time to come up with 6 million. Uh, You know, I don't know their system of doing this. We have 4 million for sure. Beyond that, there are, it depends on what you're counting and whether, where you're counting the numbers. But it's in the millions. There's no question of it. And one of the things that you should know is that 31% of all the deaths were children under the age of 10. So you're talking about one-third. So even if you're talking about the modest number of 4 million, you're talking about at least a million and a quarter of children who died. You know, so it's horrendous. Yeah, it's horrendous. Whole families were wiped out. A lot of those, uh, a lot of people were also sent to the gulag, the concentration camps, if they opposed, or they ended up uh, in Siberia, for example, or they were executed. Um, I just found out about my family. I, I'm the daughter of two survivors, and my father's family were labeled as kulaks. They were the most prominent uh, family in this small. Well, it's a big village just outside the city of Kiev. And none of my cousins know about my grandfather because the family never told them anything. They were, you know, families were afraid to speak about this to their children for fear they're going to go to school and question the teachers in the history class where the Holodomor was completely forbidden to be spoken of. And so I went to the secret, 
Secret Service, I guess, of Ukraine these days, because I'm working with some historians, and they put me in contact with them, and they did me a favor. They found my grandfather's, uh, my grandfather's papers, and in it, I found out he was arrested in 1928, one of the first to be arrested as a kulak in December, and that he didn't own a lot of land, but he did own a store along with some land. And uh, I also found out that he was organizing uh, people against collectivization. And for that, he ended up in prison until 1937, where he died. Hmm. Was it relieving at all to finally have that information? It was for me. And I, ha- I was the one from outside of Ukraine who sent the information to them. It was all written in Russian. I had it translated, even though I know Russian. I've studied it. You know, uh, but I told them, I said, we have to know this, and we have to know why this happened. Even my own father didn't tell me much about it, you know, about his father's, what happened to him, except that he died in prison. You know, but they didn't, they knew even less than I did about the details, because they were told it was better that they didn't know, so they never had to be questioned. Now, being the daughter of survivors, did you hear stories of the Holodomor growing up? Did they speak with you at all about what they remembered or no? Yes, they did. I I don't think there was a time when I didn't know about the Holodomor. My mother also lived through it. She was an 11-year-old child when it happened. My father was 19, so he was a little older, 1920. You know, so he knew a lot about it. And we, we, um, I was born in a DP camp, a displaced persons camp in Germany, in Mannheim, Germany, after the war. I was born after the, right after the war, 1945. So that most of the people that were in these camps had been people from there. There were lots of Ukrainians because the Germans took them out as Nazi slave laborers, as they did my parents. So my parents had lived through the communists and the Nazis. You know, so they've been traumatized, you might say, with a double whammy. And in Montreal, where we immigrated, uh, we actually, uh, my parents were part of a parish. It was the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of Canada parish that was set up specifically of people who had come from Central and Eastern Ukraine who had lived through this. Because the Ukrainians who have already been in Canada, they didn't understand what these people had lived through, and they couldn't find some common language. So they set up their own church. And I grew up with everybody having a story. I felt my father's trauma. My mother was angry most of the time about this, what had happened to her. My father was very uh, quiet, and he internalized it. And he also spent two and a half years in the concentration camp under Stalin. Because Stalin, when he labeled the family as being kulaks and enemies of the people, it, it transferred on to the rest of the family. So he ended up going to a concentration camp at the age of 21. You know, so that sort of thing happened. So, you know, um, I know it's affected me. I felt I had to know about it. And so I studied history at McGill University, and I went into teaching. And when I retired from teaching, I felt I had to do something about getting it into curriculum. And that's what I've been doing for the last 12 years. Is there one story that your parents told you or one story that your grandmother told you that especially sticks out in your memory? Well, my grandmother, um, I saw my grandmother twice in my life. You know, with uh, growing up as a child of refugees, it meant that we never could communicate with the family. And my mother wrote letters once a decade 
And I went to Ukraine for the first time in 68, 1968, and then I went in 77. And I had was given permission to visit them in their village for a couple of hours at a time. And the second time, they let me even sleep over. And I spent the whole night talking to my grandmother. And she told me one story that was um, that really upset me. And this was the fact. She was working in a collect, on a collective farm in a co-hosp. And she said that to feed her children, uh, there was a distillery in the town. And the distillery, to make alcohol, needs grain. So they had all kinds of grain under a tar- tarp, tarps, you know, these uh, huge... Uh, huge piles of grain that they were using to ferment for alcohol. And at the end of the day, they had a huge pit outside in the yard where they would throw the chaff into it at the end of it. In other words, the garbage that came out after the liquor is formed. And she said that basically she would go there every day with two pails, that she would have on a stick across her shoulders, she would go to pick up this stuff. Some of the people that lined the outside of this pit fell in and drowned, but she would somehow get the stuff out of there, take it home, she would uh, wash it, she would dry it, she would grind it, and whatever little thing they had, they did have a cow that was so ornery that even the communists didn't want to have anything to do with this cow. And so she used some of that milk, and then whatever else that she could find, you know, weeds and stuff like that, she would make some form of bread. And that is one of the reasons why they were kept alive. Yeah. So, I mean, something like that with a distillery. Can you imagine? Instead of worrying about feeding people, they were trying to make alcohol while people starved all around them. That's right. So that left a mark on me. Now, you mentioned earlier that you've made it your mission to get this story into people's hands. And I know that most people have never heard of the Holodomor, and I I know many of my listeners will be thinking to themselves, you know, how did I not know about this? Do most people you meet say the same thing, that they've never heard of the Holodomor, and they just, they wonder, how has this information not been told to me yet? Well, I've been doing workshops for teachers uh, across Canada, some in the United States, and, and in Ukraine as well. Um, it's a teaching situation. You have to teach them. Ukrainians were not allowed to know their own history. They have only since the independence of Ukraine are they allowed to learn about the whole of the war and other uh, sort of black marks in their history. So this is something that's happened over there. Now, in Canada, um, I've taught uh, teachers at uh, professional associations, you know, for professional development days, and they would come up to me afterwards and they'd say, my goodness, I've been teaching history and I've never come across this. How come it's been denied? You know, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that the Soviets had a big propaganda machine out there. They, uh, the only people who seemed to be talking about the whole of the war before the Soviet Union collapsed were basically the emigres like my parents, and my parents didn't speak English very well. It, it had to wait until my generation came of age. We were educated, we knew what we were doing, and we tried to do make a difference and try to educate people. And so we, our community has been very active, especially in Canada. Uh, Canada was the first Western nation to recognize the whole of the war as genocide in 2008, 
But look how long it took, from 1933 to 2008. You know, that's a tremendously long period of time. Part of it was because, you know, the West knew about the whole of the war, that it was happening. But they didn't do anything because they looked upon it as an internal problem of the Soviet Union. We can't get involved. And also, it happened during the Depression, which meant that every country had their own problems. And some of the Canadian companies, for example, were interested in selling machinery to the Soviet Union for industrialization. So that became more important than the human element. Uh, well, I'd like to go actually back to the cover-up that was oh, yes. done by the Soviet Union. What specific efforts under Stalin's guidance did the Soviet Union conduct to cover up the evidence? Well, first of all, uh, they, the only way you could have, uh, in a totalitarian society, that you can get information is through journalism, to get it to the outside world. I mean, it was called the, uh, you know, the Iron Curtain because nothing could go in or out without their knowing what was going on. And so basically there were a number of, um, of uh, influential um, journalists uh, in the Soviet Union, and one of the top ones was Walter Durante. You must have heard his name. He yep. won the Pulitzer Prize for his uh, reportage about the Soviet Union. And he was the only uh, Western journalist to have had a personal interview with Stalin. He obviously uh, did things that Stalin wanted, and he wrote that there was, there was a little bit of malnutrition, but there was no famine as such. And he was a liar. And even today, the Ukrainian community is still after the Pulitzer Prize people to revoke his Pulitzer Prize. And they have admitted that he was a liar, <laughs> but they won't give it up. So, you know, so here's a man who then criticized others who did. There was a man by the name of Gareth Jones, a Welshman who had worked with Lloyd George in Britain and so forth. And he had gone to Ukraine to find out. He had heard that there was something going on. And he traveled. He got away from the Secret Service. Somehow they, he was able to get away. And he walked through villages. And he came home. And he was told, do not do anything about this, because you're going to be blackballed by Durante and others. And sure enough, he was. I have to say this openly, that there were quite a few scholars and journalists who believed in the Soviet utopia, that this was the kind of society that was going to change the world. They didn't want to believe anything that was, uh, didn't want to believe anything bad about the Soviet Union. So there were a lot of socialists who would not listen. But there is an ongoing effort of the Russian state to make sure that the story of the Holodomor isn't told, even today. Yes, there is. Absolutely. <laughs> and very, very prominently so. You know, they, uh, they're trying to always find some way of trying to either ignore it. And the latest thing, of course, was that eventually Putin did say that there was famine. But it happened all over the Soviet Union. It is true that other areas had some famine as well, but nothing like in Ukraine. Now, just recently, the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation released poll statistics for the year 2019, and they revealed that 15% of millennials think the world would be better off, quote unquote, if the Soviet Union still existed. When you hear this poll, you know, given that your job consists of educating people about the human rights atrocities committed by the Soviet Union and communism, how do you respond? Well, I, I think uh, I got an email the other day 
where, um, you know, it was also complaints, complaints about the American way of life, the Canadian democracy, and so, et cetera, et cetera. And in it, then, the person was very sarcastic in stating, it's too bad that you're criticizing this, but isn't that interesting that you have this right, and you have this right, and that right, and you can do the following, you can speak out, you can demonstrate, without fear that you're going to be either uh, killed by snipers or wiped out or you can't even open your mouth in that society. I think we need to, to stand up. I think more people have to stand up and say that this is not acceptable. Uh, you know, the Russian population, I mean, I have nothing against the Russian people. I think, uh, you know, they're being subjected to a lot of uh, propaganda and most of them have a very meager lifestyle. You know, with the life, you know, their the life expectancy is poor because of the kind of society that they have to live in, and so basically, I think uh, we have to step up to, to the plate. We have to tell people about what's happening, and that's why I feel it's so important for the whole of the more to be taught, for people to know about it, because they did this. If as they, uh, you know, they tried to create what was called the Soviet citizen, the Soviet man where your identity was not your national identity, but it, you were loyal to the state. Well, that meant that they had to dehumanize and destroy the Ukrainian identity, which failed even though they tried, you know. And that is something that uh, people should be aware of, that, uh, you know, the kind of society that it is. What is the most rewarding part of your job? you have a very meaningful job and you get to see minds changed. So I'm wondering what for you, what do you think, what is the most rewarding part of what you do? Well, I've been at this for 12 years. And what I've noticed over those 12 years, like I'm getting more and more people calling me and asking for materials and they're aware of this and they want to know and they want to teach the whole of the more and they want to uh, be aware of what's happening. Um, there, it doesn't look as if they're just going to be taken in by Russian propaganda. And that is important as far as I'm concerned. And I get a lot of satisfaction of teach, from teaching teachers who, uh, for example, I wrote a book. It's called Whole of the Modern Ukraine, the Genocidal Famine 1932-33. And it just came out last year. And it's basically a lot of information that I thought would, would be required if you wanted to teach it, all the basic information, basically what, it, what I would need if I had to teach it and I knew nothing about it. And it, it also includes lots of documents. It, it includes lesson plans. It includes resor- a list of resources, et cetera. So that, you know, that kind of thing, people are excited about it. And I'm finding that school boards, certain school boards are giving it to every school. Like they're purchasing the book and putting it into the school library, which I'm thrilled with. So that the word is getting out. And I'm seeing that what I'm doing is actually making a difference. Now, if people want to get their hands on this book that you've written, where can they go? Well, it's, uh, it was produced, it was published by Kiyus Press, which is a, a, a project of the uh, University of Alberta. So University of Alberta... Uh, you can go onto their website and go to Kiyos Press, and the book is there. Or you could go onto our website, HREC. We have uh, our organization, we have the acronym is HREC, H-R-E-C. And you could go to education.holodomor.ca. 
Valentina, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I, I really appreciate you coming on to the show. Well, thank you for being interested in this very important topic. Thank you for listening today. To learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, visit our website at acton.org. This episode of Acton Line was produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel. 